Section 2 of The Journey of Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca and His Companions from Florida to the Pacific, 1528-1536. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Journey of Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca and His Companions from Florida to the Pacific, 1528-1536, translated by Fanny Bandelier. Section 2. On Saturday, the 1st of May, the day on which all this had happened, he ordered that they should give to each one of those who had to go with him two pounds of ship biscuit and one half pound of bacon, and thus we set out upon our journey inland. The number of people we took along was three hundred, among them the commissary, Father Juan Suarez, another friar called Father Juan de Palos, and three priests, the officers, and forty horsemen. We marched for fifteen days, living on the supplies we had taken with us, without finding anything else to eat but palmettos, like those of Andalusia. In all this time we did not meet a soul, nor did we see a house or village, and finally reached a river which we crossed with much trouble, by swimming and on rafts. It took us a day to ford the river, on account of the swiftness of its current. When we got across, there came towards us some two hundred Indians, more or less. The governor went to meet them, and after he talked to them by signs, they acted in such a manner that we were obliged to set upon them and seize five or six, who took us to their houses about half a league from there, where we found a large quantity of corn ready for harvest. We gave infinite thanks to our Lord for having helped us in such great need, for as we were not used to such exposures, we felt greatly exhausted and were very much weakened by hunger. On the third day that we were at this place, the purser, the inspector, the commissary, and myself jointly begged the governor to send out in search of a harbor, as the Indians told us the sea was not very far away. He forbade us to speak of it, saying it was at a great distance, and I, being the one who most insisted, he bade me to go on a journey of discovery and search of a port, and said I should go on foot with forty people. So the next day I started with the captain Alonso del Castillo and forty men of his company. At noon we reached sandy patches that seemed to extend far inland. For about one and a half leagues we walked with the water up to the knee and stepping on shells that cut our feet badly. All this gave us much trouble until we reached the river which we had crossed first and which emptied through the same inlet and then, as we were too ill-provided for crossing it, we turned back to camp and told the governor what we had found and how it was necessary to ford the river again at our first crossing in order to explore the inlet thoroughly and find out if there was a harbor. The next day he sent a captain called Valenzuela with sixty footmen and six horsemen to cross the river and follow its course to the sea in search of a port. After two days he came back, reporting that he had discovered the inlet 
which was a shallow bay with water to the knees, but it had there no harbor. He saw five or six canoes crossing from one side to the other, with Indians who wore many feather bushes. Hearing this, we left the next day, always in quest of the province called Appalachian by the Indians, taking as guides those whom we had captured, and marched until the 17th of June without finding an Indian who would dare to wait for us. Finally there came to us a chief, whom an Indian carried on his shoulders. He wore a painted deerskin, and many people followed him, and he was preceded by many players on flutes made of reeds. He came to the place where the governor was, and stayed an hour. We gave him to understand by signs that our aim was to reach Appalachian, but from his gestures it seemed to us that he was an enemy of the Appalachian people, and that he would go and help us against them. We gave him beads and little bells and other trinkets, while he presented the governor with the hide he wore. Then he turned back, and we followed him. That night we reached a broad and deep river, the current of which was very strong, and as we did not dare to cross it, we built a canoe out of rafts, and were a whole day in getting across. If the Indians had wished to oppose us, they could have easily impeded our passage, for even with their help we had much trouble. One horseman, whose name was Juan Velasquez, a native of Cuellar, not willing to wait, rode into the stream, and the strong current swept him from the horse, and he took hold of the reins and was drowned with the animal. The Indians of that chief, whose name was Dulchachelan, discovered the horse and told us that we would find him lower down the stream. So they went after the man, and his death caused us much grief, since until then we had not lost anybody. The horse made a supper for many on that night. Beyond there and on the following day we reached the chief's village, whither he sent us corn. That same night, as they went for water, an arrow was shot at one of the Christians, but God willed that he was not hurt. The day after we left this place, without any of the natives having appeared, because all had fled. But further on some Indians were seen who showed signs of hostility, and although we called them they would neither come back nor wait, but withdrew and followed in our rear. The governor placed a few horsemen in ambush near the trail, who, as they, the Indians, passed, surprised them, and took three or four Indians whom we kept as guides thereafter. They led us into a country difficult to traverse, and strange to look at, for it had very great forests, the trees being wonderfully tall, and so many of them fallen that they obstructed our way so that we had to make long detours and with great trouble. Of the trees standing, many were rent from top to bottom by thunderbolts, which strike very often in that country, where storms and tempests are always frequent. With such efforts we traveled until the day after St. John's Day, when we came in sight of Appalachian, without having been noticed by the Indians of the land. We gave many thanks to God for being so near it, believing what we had been told about the country to be true, and that now our sufferings would come to an end after the long and weary march over bad trails. 
We had also suffered greatly from hunger, for although we found corn occasionally, most of the time we marched seven or eight leagues without any, and many there were among us who, besides suffering great fatigue and hunger, had their backs covered with wounds from the weight of the armor and other things they had to carry as occasion required. But to find ourselves at last where we wished to be, and where we had been assured so much food and gold would be had, made us forget a great deal of our hardships and weariness. Once inside of Appalachian, the governor commanded me to enter the village with nine horsemen and fifty foot. So the inspector and I undertook this. Upon penetrating into the village, we found only women and boys. The men were not there at the time. But soon, while we were walking about, they came and began to fight, shooting arrows at us. They killed the inspector's horse, but finally fled and left us. We found there plenty of ripe maize ready to be gathered, and much dry corn already housed. We also found many deerskins, and among them mantles made of thread and of poor quality, with which the women cover parts of their bodies. They had many vessels for grinding maize. The village contained forty small and low houses, reared in sheltered places, out of fear of the great storms that continuously occur in the country. The buildings are of straw, and they are surrounded by dense timber, tall trees, and numerous water pools, where there are so many fallen trees, and of such size, as to greatly obstruct and impede circulation. The country between our landing place and the village and country of Appalachian is mostly level. The soil is sand and earth. All throughout it there are very large trees and open forests containing nut trees, laurels, and others of the kind called resinous, cedar, juniper, water oak, pines, oak, and low palmetto like those of Castilla. Everywhere there are many lagoons, large and small, some very difficult to cross, partly because they are so deep, partly because they are covered with fallen trees. Their bottom is sandy, and in the province of Appalachian the lagoons are much larger than those we found previously. There is much maize in this province, and the houses are scattered all over the country, as much as those of the Helves. The animals we saw there were three kinds of deer, rabbits and hares, bears and lions and other wild beasts, among them one that carries its young in a pouch on its belly as long as the young are small, until they are able to look for their sustenance, and even then when they are out after food and people come, the mother does not move until her little ones are in the pouch again. The country is very cold. It has good pasture for cattle. There are birds of many kinds in large numbers, geese, ducks, wild ducks, muscovy ducks, ibis, small white herons, egrets, herons, and partridges. We saw many falcons, marsh hawks, sparrow hawks, pigeon hawks, and many other birds. Two hours after we arrived at Appalachian, the Indians that had fled came back peaceably, begging us to give back to them their women and children, which we did. The governor, however, kept with him one of their caciques, 
at which they became so angry as to attack us the following day. They did it so swiftly and with so much audacity as to set fire to the lodges we occupied, but when we sallied forth they fled to the lagoons nearby, on account of which and of the big corn patches we could not do them any harm beyond killing one Indian. The day after, Indians from a village on the other side came and attacked us in the same manner, escaping in the same way with the loss of a single man. We remained at this village for twenty-five days, making three excursions during the time. We found the country very thinly inhabited and difficult to march through, owing to bad places, timber, and lagoons. We inquired of the cacique whom we had retained, and of the other Indians with us, who were neighbors and enemies of them, about the condition and settlements of the land, the quality of its people, about supplies and everything else. They answered, each one for himself, that Appalachian was the largest town of all, that further in less people were met with, who were very much poorer than those here, and that the country was thinly settled, the inhabitants greatly scattered, and also that further inland, big lakes, dense forests, great deserts and wastes were met with. Then we asked about the land to the south, its villages and resources. They said that in that direction, and nine days' march towards the sea, was a village called Aute, where the Indians had plenty of corn and also beans and melons, and that, being so near the sea, they obtained fish, and that those were their friends. Seeing how poor the country was, taking into account the unfavorable reports about its population and everything else, and that the Indians made constant war upon us, wounding men and horses whenever they went for water by shooting arrows at us, which they could do from the lagoons where we could not reach them, and that they had killed a chief of Texcoco called Don Pedro, whom the commissary had taken along with him, we agreed to depart and go in search of the sea and of the village of Aute, which they had mentioned. And so we left, arriving there five days after. The first day we traveled across lagoons and trails without seeing a single Indian. On the second day, however, we reached a lake very difficult to cross, the water reaching to the chest, and there were a great many fallen trees. Once in the middle of it, a number of Indians assailed us from behind trees that concealed them from our sight, while others were on fallen trees, and they began to shower arrows upon us, so that many men and horses were wounded, and before we could get out of the lagoon, our guide was captured by them. After we had got out, they pressed us very hard, intending to cut us off, and it was useless to turn upon them, for they would hide in the lake, and from there wound both men and horses. So the governor ordered the horsemen to dismount and attack them on foot. The purser dismounted also, and our people attacked them. Again they fled to a lagoon, and we succeeded in holding the trail. In this fight some of our people were wounded in spite of their good armor. There were men that day who swore they had seen two oak trees, each as thick as the calf of a leg, shot through and through by arrows, 
which is not surprising if we consider the force and dexterity with which they shoot. I myself saw an arrow that had penetrated the base of a poplar tree for half a foot in length. All the many Indians from Florida we saw were archers, and being very tall and naked, at a distance they appeared giants. Those people are wonderfully built, very gaunt and of great strength and agility. Their bows are as thick as an arm, from eleven to twelve spans long, shooting an arrow at two hundred paces with unerring aim. From that crossing we went to another similar one, a league away, but while it was half a league in length, it was also much more difficult. There we crossed without opposition, for the Indians, having spent all their arrows at the first place, had nothing wherewith they would dare attack us. The next day, while crossing a similar place, I saw the tracks of people who went ahead of us, and I notified the governor who was in the rear, so that although the Indians turned upon us, as we were on our guard, they could do us no harm. Once on open ground, they pursued us still. We attacked them twice, killing two, while they wounded me and two or three other Christians, and entered the forest again, where we could no longer injure them. In this manner we marched for eight days, without meeting any more natives, until one league from the site to which I said we were going. There, as we were marching along, Indians crept up unseen and fell upon our rear. A boy belonging to a nobleman called Avellaneda, who was in the rear guard, gave the alarm. Avellaneda turned back to assist, and the Indians hit him with an arrow on the edge of the cuirass, piercing his neck nearly through and through, so that he died on the spot, and we carried him to Aute. It took us nine days from Appalachian to the place where we stopped, and then we found that all the people had left, and the lodges were burnt. But there was plenty of maize, squash, and beans, all nearly ripe, and ready for harvest. We rested there for two days. After this, the governor entreated me to go in search of the sea, as the Indians said it was so nearby, and we had, on this march, already suspected its proximity from a great river to which we had given the name of the Rio de la Magdalena. I left on the following day in search of it, accompanied by the commissary, the Captain Castillo, Andres Durantes, seven horsemen and fifty foot. We marched until sunset, reaching an inlet or arm of the sea, where we found plenty of oysters on which the people feasted, and we gave many thanks to God for bringing us there. The next day I sent twenty men to reconnoiter the coast and explore it, who returned on the day following at nightfall, saying that these inlets and bays were very large, and went so far inland as greatly to impede our investigations, and that the coast was still at a great distance. Hearing this, and considering how ill-prepared we were for the task, I returned to where the governor was. We found him sick, together with many others. The night before, Indians had made an attack, putting them in great stress, owing to their enfeebled condition. The Indians had also killed one of their horses. I reported upon my journey and on the bad condition of the country. That day we remained there. On the next day we left Aute and marched all day to the spot I had visited on my last exploration, 
our march was extremely difficult, for neither had we horses enough to carry the sick, nor did we know how to relieve them. They became worse every day, and our sufferings were afflicting. There it became manifest how few resources we had for going further, and even in case we had been provided, we did not know where to go. Our men were mostly sick, and too much out of condition to be of any use, whatever. I refrain from making a long story of it. Anyone can imagine what might be experienced in a land so strange and so utterly without resources of any kind, either for stay or for an escape. Nevertheless, since the surest aid was God our Lord, and since we never doubted of it, something happened that put us in a worse plight yet. Most of the horsemen began to leave in secret, hoping thus to save themselves, forsaking the governor and the sick who were helpless. Still, as among them were many of good families and of rank, they would not suffer this to happen unbeknown to the governor and your majesty's officials, so that, when we remonstrated, showing at what an unseasonable time they were leaving their captain and the sick, and above all forsaking your majesty's service, they concluded to stay and share the fate of all, without abandoning one another. The governor thereupon called them to his presence altogether, and each one in particular, asking their opinion about this dismal country, so as to be able to get out of it and seek relief, for in that land there was none. One-third of our people were dangerously ill, getting worse hourly, and we felt sure of meeting the same fate, with death as our only prospect, which in such a country was much worse yet. And considering these and many other inconveniences, and that we had tried many expedients, we finally resorted to a very difficult one, which was to build some craft in which to leave the land. It seemed impossible, as none of us knew how to construct ships. We had no tools, no iron, no smithery, no oakum, no pitch, no tackling, finally nothing of what was indispensable. Neither was there anybody to instruct us in shipbuilding, and above all there was nothing to eat while the work was going on for those who would have to perform the task. Considering all this, we agreed to think it over. Our parley ceased for that day, and everyone went off, leaving it to God our Lord to put him on the right road according to his pleasure. The next day God provided that one of the men should come, saying that he would make wooden flues and bellows of deerskin, and as we were in such a state that anything appearing like relief seemed acceptable, we told him to go to work, and agreed to make of our stirrups, spurs, crossbows, and other iron implements, the nails, saws, and hatchets, and other tools we so greatly needed for our purpose. In order to obtain food while the work proposed was in progress, we determined upon four successive raids into Aute, with all the horses and men that were fit for service, and that on every third day 
a horse should be killed and the meat distributed among those who worked at the barges and among the sick. The raids were executed with such people and horses as were able, and they brought as many as four hundred fanegas of maize, although not without armed opposition from the Indians. We gathered plenty of palmettos, using their fiber and husk, twisting and preparing it in place of oakum for the barges. The work on these was done by the only carpenter we had, and progressed so rapidly that, beginning on the fourth day of August, on the twentieth day of the month of September, five barges of twenty-two elbow lengths each were ready, cocked with palmetto oakum and tarred with pitch, which a Greek called Don Teodoro made from certain pines. Of the husk of palmettos and of the tails and manes of the horses, we made ropes and tackles. Of our shirts, sails, and of the junipers that grew there, we made the oars, which we thought were necessary, and such was the stress in which our sins had placed us, that only with very great trouble could we find stones for ballast and anchors of the barges, for we had not seen a stone in the whole country. We flayed the legs of the horses, and tanned the skin to make leather pouches for carrying water. During that time some of the party went to the coves and inlets for seafood, and the Indians surprised them twice, killing ten of our men in plain view of the camp, without our being able to prevent it. We found them shot through and through with arrows, for although several wore good armor, it was not sufficient to protect them since, as I said before, they shot their arrows with such force and precision. According to the sworn statements of our pilots, we had traveled from the bay to which we gave the name of the cross to this place two hundred and eighty leagues, more or less. In all these parts we saw no mountains, nor heard of any, and before embarking we had lost over forty men through sickness and hunger, besides those killed by the Indians. On the twenty-second day of the month of September, we had eaten up all the horses but one. We embarked in the following order. In the barge of the governor there were forty-nine men, and as many in the one entrusted to the purser and the commissary. The third barge he placed in charge of Captain Alonso del Castillo and of Andres Dorantes, with forty-eight men. In another he placed two captains, named Teles and Peñalosa, with forty-seven men. The last one he gave to the inspector and to me, with forty-nine men, and, after clothing and supplies were put on board, the sides of the barges only rose half a foot above the water. Besides, we were so crowded as to be unable to stir. So great is the power of need, that it brought us to venture out into a troublesome sea in this manner, and without any one among us having the least knowledge of the art of navigation. End of section 2